Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30, Sunday morning, and of course it's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, a big welcome back to Penny Woodward. Good morning, Penny. Good morning, Pam. It's lovely to be here, despite having to drive through torrential downpours to get here, but I didn't quite get washed off the road. But, good. And the rain is so welcome that, um, oh. you know, I was saying, this is good, Penny, as I was driving along. So. <laughs> My tank is actually getting some more water. I'm so pleased. Yeah, it's exciting. And, and look, just all sorts of things that I think, you know, we all know that autumn's the time to start getting things into the ground and I've been holding off because it's so dry and I did do some planting last week so I'm so excited. I actually planted two macadamias that I bought from diggers and um, so it's going to be really interesting to see how they grow. Excellent, yeah. I mean, isn't it great if you can plant in autumn while the soil's yep. warm and then you get some rain coming Absolutely perfect. It is indeed. So, And I really hope it's been falling in the west of the state because the farmers over there are having a diabolical time. Mm. I know one um, garlic farmer who hasn't been able to do any soil preparation or anything because he's just had no rain for three months, four months. Wow. And he can't, because of the sort of soil that he's got, he can't do any do preparation until there's some moisture in it. Mm. Um, so he, I really hope they've, they've had some, this is around Great Western, so I really hope he gets some water in this lot of rain absolutely yeah so that's good yep we've also got to say hello to ab good morning ab Ah, good morning pam and listeners yes out my way it was catting and dogging as well and um, made for a bit of a slow hairy ride for the first um, drive for the first 10k's but um, yeah again very happy although we have had rain we're surprisingly because we're supposedly in a rain shadow area but we have had um, a relative good amount of rain over the last couple of weeks, which mm. is nice, but um, I think there was about 10 mil on Tuesday. Um, so, yeah, it'd be nice to go home and check the gauge and see what's going on. And again, I also put in some plants, put in some um, a whole range of calistamine, which I'm oh, okay. pretty excited about. And, uh, yeah, I've, I've grown them on from um, very young, small seedlings. I've, um, yeah, potted them up quite a few times over the last year and a half and finally they were ready to go in the ground so my theory being that the more mature plants the rabbits will ignore so this is my next theory on rabbit control (laughs) you're crossing your fingers while you say that i am i'm crossing everything so they've been in a couple of weeks now and haven't been looked at whereas a couple of banksias that i put in have been nibbled and a few other things have been nibbled but the um calistamine haven't been touched so okay uh, looking good good excellent gonna have plants in my garden yet now I'm delighted to uh, to introduce to listeners uh, someone new who hasn't been into uh, the gardening show before, Tim Sanson, and welcome Tim. Thanks, Pam. And Tim, you're CEO horticultural division down at Diggers. That's right. Yep, fantastic. How long have you been there now? Oh, I've been at Diggers for just over ten years. Wow. So I started off at Diggers uh, at the Garden of Sir Earth up in mm-hmm. Blackwood um, as a gardener about ten years ago. And I've worked in various jobs throughout the organisation to end up where I am right now. Right. Where did you originally come from? You graduated um, at Burnley? I did. I studied at Burnley. Yes. So I'm, I grew up in Melbourne, grew up in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. I actually didn't come to Burnley until after I'd studied uh, environmental management. 
okay. which I did uh, after I left school. Then I went and travelled overseas, worked in horticulture in the UK, and that's where I really, I guess, got my first taste of ornamental horticulture and mm-hmm. the combination of my studies in environmental management and ornamental horticulture led me to an interest in productive um, gardening, food going, gardening, uh, and the sort of the confluence of of growing food at home as well as creating a beautiful garden, uh, concepts of permaculture, those sorts of things, and then and then into heirlooms and all the sorts of things that we now focus on at Diggers. Yes, mm. yes, fantastic. And you obviously enjoy working at Diggers. Oh, I love working at Diggers, yeah, yes. and, I, and I, I love working at Diggers. Um, you know, we have – I feel really privileged to work at Diggers, actually, I think – Years before I was working at Diggers, I used to get the catalogues and sort of look at the characters in there and think, wow, wouldn't that be a great job? And I pinch myself often that I'm actually doing that now. So, Fantastic. Yeah. Yep. Um, and I presume, they have Diggers still got the trial farm? Yeah, we 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 had the trial farm I think you're referring to is up at Trowall in Seymour. Yes, there used to be a big one. Yeah, yes. the, it's still part of the Diggers. Well, it's actually, it's actually part of the, the family, the, the Blazy family right. um, estate or properties. Yep. Uh, and we don't actually do many trials up there anymore. We actually have a trial ground at Dramana now, uh, which is more closely associated with our day-to-day operation. Yes. Uh, and Penny's visited our trial ground several times. And, I and have. They very generously let me go there and take photographs yes, and, and chat, sample chat all the them and yeah. I do taste tests and mm. stuff. So it's very exciting. It's, it's really good to have it. Right next to where we operate, so yes, that's we're in great. touch with it all the time. I'm mm. I'm visiting it every couple of well, every week or two. We're down there checking it out, seeing what's going on. Right, we're obviously in a turnover phase at the moment where we've just finished all our summer crops, and are looking at green manures and winter crops, and looking at crop rotations, and mm-hmm. basically everything we put through the catalogue through our seed catalogue gets grown in our in our in one of our gardens, if not our trial garden or our show gardens, before they make it to our catalogues. I think that's that's fantastic mm. because, um, yes, I mean, without doing those trials and testing them out for yourself, you don't really know what's going to be acclimatised to Melbourne conditions. That's right. And a lot of the information that we get from seed companies or, um, or, or, or books that we read is secondhand information from either Northern America or, or Europe, mostly the UK. And it's really interesting for us to take that information Compare it to what our experience is growing it here, mm. uh, and and see what the differences are, and they can be quite significant too. Mm. So that's it's it's a, it's an expense for us to do this. It's quite an expensive operation for us to do it, but I think we're the only ones that are doing it any, with any rigour in Australia. Mm. Fantastic. Mm. Okay. Now you mentioned you've just picked the very last of your heirloom tomatoes. Yes. I well the the tomatoes in our trial ground came out a couple of weeks ago because it's it's quite a hot spot that gets um, finishes up quite early. Yep. But I've just picked the last of mine i've got the last crop i usually get is a variety called wapsipinican peach which is a yellow furry tomato okay uh, also they're, known as they're white an peach. amazing tomato they're I beautiful love tomatoes. The, it's one of my favorites fabulous to mm. taste but um they look fantastic yeah. i love that slight hairiness over the, the outside well they're also known well wapsipinican peach the peach name is very appropriate because it has this mm. sort of fuzz across the across the skin which is quite unique in in tomatoes, it's a it's a variety from I think it's from Iowa in the, in the states. We've okay. we've had a long connection with the Seed Savers Network in the states, so it's one of the varieties that we brought over thanks to them. But it's one of the very last varieties uh, to keep fruiting, and it's well, I've still got mine fruiting. What are we now? Middle of April. Yes. I if I don't rip the plant out because it's looking really scrappy, so I'm tempted to, but it's still bearing fruit. It's still got fruit that'll ripen if. If we get some warm weather for the next couple of weeks, I'll probably still get some fruit into May. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Now, the other thing that uh, the diggers have done this year, I think for the first time, is, is really embrace uh, Melbourne International Flower and Garden Show. Um, 
how did you feel that all went and, and would you participate again next year? We've actually been at the Flower Show for many years in a much smaller... But much smaller yeah. capacity, So this yes. year we significantly expanded our um, our presence there, which was really a celebration of heirlooms. That's what we were we were trying to do and trying to, I guess, really engage that conversation around heirloom varieties. So we significantly expanded the, 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 the size of our, our display. We put in, and many of your listeners would have seen, a huge um, pyramid of, of pumpkins and gourds. Which uh, we were all terrified someone would take one pumpkin and the whole thing would come crashing Well, there was, there was quite – the whole, the whole operation was, was a really uh, fun operation for diggers to run. There was it, – it basically drew on all parts of our business. We had – or all parts of the diggers' operation. We had people from our nursery division growing plants. We had people from our trials department and our garden department growing the pumpkins and um, part of our design team that were doing – did the design layout. And then we had people, various people doing workshops. And so it brought everyone together. So it was quite a – it's quite a fun enterprise to yes, run. I mean, right. it was stressful at times because it was a big operation. <laughs> sure, but that putting that stack together, it it looked wonderful, uh, but it was highly contrived. Really, each one was actually staked in. Ah. There was no chance of it collapsing. Good, good. <laughs> it was perfectly safe. <laughs> but more the issue at um, in the gardens at the exhibition buildings is the the possums and and how we would stop. The, the pumpkins getting eaten yes. at, at, over night time yes. when I was there. I think any of us that have been involved with, with displays in at, uh, in at Mifkus um, know all about the possums. Every yeah. night it's outrageous. Yeah. I mean, I, for years I was involved with, with potting up seedlings with, with small children and we'd have trays and trays of, of, of plugs of seedlings, you know, and every night the mm. possums and it would come down out of the trees and decimate them. <laughs> well, we, we employed, because we've done it a few times, not that scale, but we've yep. had displays there before, we've learnt the lesson. So we've, we now put a heap of decoy apples out. Uh, and they go the apples sweeter. They go them yes. before they touch Good anything thinking. else. So, and that worked pretty well. <laughs> okay, mm. but excellent. The, but then you also had the rats. Yes, and look, <laughs> you can't get rid of rats, can you? Look, you we had it was there for three days, yeah. so or four, four, five days. Yeah. We, we survived. We got, I, we got I, it through I just, to the point. It just amused me that you sort of had the had the possums under control, and these little blighters came in and yes. and ate bits of pumpkin. They didn't even eat the whole thing. No, they sort of chewed no. on strategic think, pieces. I think the possums put it on their calendar for the year. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and they all they yeah. all come down to Melbourne for a bit of a extra <laughs> extra feast. Yeah, they know it's on. Yeah, word goes out. Maybe they're gardeners. <laughs> Tim, can you can you explain the whole trust thing with figures? Yeah, sure. Because um, I, it's something when I'm talking to people that although it's been in the catalogues and it's been reported in the papers, a lot of people don't understand. They don't realise what it is that Clive and Penny Blasey have done. Yeah. So yeah, I think sorry. I think best to explain that from the start point of diggers, uh, I suppose is um, and. I, Many of your listeners are avid gardeners that probably know a bit about what we are at Diggers and what we do. Um, but for those who don't, I'll, I'll run you through a little bit of history. So Clive and Penny Blasey started Diggers in 1978 in a backyard in, in Middle Park uh, and moved to Heronswood, our current location, down in Dramana in the early 80s. Uh, and the properties that we've run out of and the ownership of the business as such were the Blasey family. So it was Clive and Penny and their, and their kids. Uh, so... The, the trust that was created um, about four or five years ago, and effectively what happened, well, not effectively, actually what happened was the, the Blasey family have donated their shares or their ownership of the company to a not-for-profit trust, the Diggers Garden Environment Trust. So the Diggers Club, as it operates now, and that's the entity that I work for, mm. is, uh, is our trading 
arm. So we, we, we're the people that put the catalogues together. We sell the plants. We, we, we communicate with the public, uh, and, and, and we do the transacting, I suppose. Uh, but our owner, the owner of our business, is the, the Garden Environment Trust. And what that means in, in the broader context is that we've now got a, a situation where the owner of our company is stable forever. It, it we can't be bought and sold. It's, it's, it, it's, it will be some, something that's there forever. And the mission of the trust is around preservation of gardens, um, his, historic gardens, preservation of garden varieties, um, be that heirloom vegetables, be that ornamental um, shrubs, perennials, trees, those sorts of things. So the gardens are actually now financed by whatever we generate as a profit from from the diggers club. So at the end of each year, we generate a an amount of money that, that is then invested back into the gardens and allows us to continue the sort of work on trials and and display gardens and communication and education around uh, gardening in Australia. So would you say it's sort of on a par with, say, the National Trust? It has that same sort of not-for-profit um, feel to it? Certainly. It's, that's, we, we model it on, on not-for-profit yeah. trust organisations. Okay. Um, probably our, our model internationally would be the Royal Horticultural Society okay. in the UK. Yeah. And, and they have been operating for two or 300 years uh, under the auspices of the Royal Society. Uh, and... Their missions are similar to ours. They're around education, promotion of gardening and preservation. So that, that, and we, we, we see ourselves as um, well, the Diggers Garden Environment Trust as someone who's, who's out there preserving the old traditions of gardening as well as what is current and appropriate for Australian gardening conditions and, and gardeners. And you, um, you took over Cloud Hill up in the Dandenongs. Are there plans for the future to expand, maybe collect a few more gardens along the way around the country? <laughs> Certainly there are. Um, we didn't actually take over Cloud Hill. I'll just technically... Um, so Jeremy Francis, who's a regular on this show, uh, he still runs the garden. Yep. Uh, and we have a, a garden shop at, at the garden. Oh, okay. Which allows yep. Diggers Club members free yep. entry to the garden. We have a relationship okay. with Jeremy. I was, okay. up, I was talking to Jeremy yesterday. He was, he, was, he was telling me what a wonderful radio program this is. and I'm going to have such fun being here. <laughs> um, so, but to answer your question, yes, we... Look, it's a, it's a long-term... Operation. It's a long-term setup. We we see the Diggers Garden and Environment Trust being around for many many years to come, uh, and yes, our mission is to uh, preserve great gardens and and preserve great gardening traditions. So as initially, the initial phase has been to really bolster the gardens that are in our current roster, and that's the Garden of St Earth up in Blackwood, um, Heronswood down at Dramana. Now Cloud Hill is part of that roster with our arrangement with, with Jeremy. And we also have a garden shop in the Botanic Gardens in Adelaide. Now that's not part of the trust function, but it is, I guess, us being able to contact more gardeners throughout Australia. Yeah, we would definitely like to be involved in more gardens and, uh, I, I guess, take our vision for preservation to more gardens throughout Victoria and Australia. Yeah, because, I mean, even from the um, trial garden point of view with the you know the vegetable seedlings, just... Having trial plots all around Australia would be fantastic for you know growing the local varieties at home and knowing what what grows well in your area. Absolutely, I think. I mean, we, we've talked a bit this morning about our trial grounds down in Dramana, mm. and that's a step better than them being trial information from overseas. But yeah. it's still not. It's a massive continent, Australia, obviously, and we've got different climates in different, massively different climates throughout the whole continent. And it would be wonderful. We'd, we'd actually do have some information that comes from growers up north, particularly in, in the vegetables, beans and things like that, yeah. um, and out-of-season crops that, that are not our normal, normal timings. But 
And this is something we get a lot of feedback from our members on too, given that we've got a, a national membership of 70, 75,000 members. We get lots of feedback from our members saying, oh, this grew well here or yeah, didn't grow well very here. Very valuable and, information. Yeah, right? and that's, yep. that's very valuable yep. to me and us yep. to, to, to take that on board and, and factor that into what we can present to our gardeners. Mm. Excellent. Can I just say one more thing? Just sure. on the Mornington Peninsula, I'm not sure that people realise what a huge employer Diggers is on the peninsula. Um, you know, there's a huge number of people who work at Diggers and, and it's a really important organisation. And I, I just think in this sort of current era of, you know, unemployment and young people in particular... And keeping it jobs local. Find jobs mm. and keeping them local, I think it's a really important organisation. Mm. So, and that's it's, just yeah. an aspect that a lot it's of people don't realise. No, I, don't I think they what, don't. I don't know what the numbers are, but no, it, it would be in the hundreds. It, it is in yeah. excess of 100 throughout a yeah. whole organisation. Remember, we run cafes, we run yeah. garden, we run gardening, yeah. we run a full mail order operation, we've got four retail stores. So it's. Mm. But the challenge for, for me and us is to maintain the, I guess, the grassroots, the grassroots emphasis yeah. that is diggers as we are at when we are at that size and, and we're achieving that now. I think it's, it's our, our vision is to take our philosophy to more people, more gardeners throughout Australia and, and it takes people to do that uh, and we've got a wonderful team. Yeah, there's some great people mm. working for Dings. Mm, fantastic. Okay, I need to get to uh, a few community announcements. Uh, believe it or not, despite the rain, there are things happening today. <laughs> In fact, over this whole, uh, they've been happening over this whole weekend. The first one I really should mention is the fact that it is day two of the uh, Tesselars Festival. Now, that is running from 9 o'clock this morning through until 4 o'clock this afternoon. Um, they have uh, lots and lots of, of stalls from different growers, um, uh, nurseries. I, I know Diana and Graham Sargent are up there with their roses. Uh, Stephen is playing host up there this weekend. Um, and also they've got um, a list of, uh, of people who are going to be giving talks uh, about various gardening topics right throughout the day. Now, um, the address is, uh, let me see, where is it? 357 Monbulk Road in Sylvan. Uh, as I say, opening at 9 o'clock this morning. Tickets are $16 adults or $13 concession and they are available at the gate today if you want to head on up there. Can I just interrupt there, Pam? I was sure. there yesterday. Okay. And it's a wonderful day. I thoroughly recommend it. It's, Good. This is a place where you can get uh, any number or, or a big number of good collecting uh, nurseries all in one spot. So if you're interested in some rare and unusual things, yes. it's a must. Excellent. Great. Okay, also open today is uh, Tilopia Gardens. Now, um, these are at 80 Beaconsfield Emerald Road, uh, which is opposite the Paternoster Road in Emerald. Melway's reference there is 127K8. Now, Tilopia Gardens is set on 10 acres. Um, it has a natural amphitheatre providing all sorts of vistas of contrasting foliage, shapes, colours, tones and textures. Uh, there are numerous meandering paths through with lots of uh, rare and interesting, unusual and unique specimens. Now, they're also today going to be having light lunches, morning and afternoon teas. There'll be live music from local artists. Uh, there'll be plant sales, um, including uh, succulents as well. Now, and also um, 
They're having tours of movement, sound and sculpture installations throughout the garden. Now, these are taking place at 11 o'clock this morning and 2 o'clock this afternoon. Uh, that's for an additional fee of $7. But garden entry is $8. It's, it's being opened under Open Gardens Australia scheme. Under 18, of course, are free. Now, a couple of other gardens that are open today. Um, La Sierra is in uh, Langwarren South. That's at 41 Barretts Road in Langwarren South. Um, also, there's a couple of native gardens open today. Goofrey, which is in Hurstbridge. Uh, the address of that one is 150 Wattle Tree Road in Hurstbridge. And also, Sam Cox has got his own personal garden open today, and that's at 12 Lorimer Road out there in Wattle Glen. So um, it would be very easy to go to both of those gardens. They're quite close to each other. Uh, I know at Sam Cox's there'll be a barbecue provided by the local CFA as well. And Sam will be giving talks about his garden, including information on natural filtration and swimming pools. Uh, just one uh, or two I should mention that are coming up. Um, one is that on Sunday, April the 26th, the Australian Plant Society Mornington Peninsula Group are going to be having their plant sale, 9.30 till 4 o'clock. This is being held at Sea Winds Perves Road uh, at, down in Arthur's Creek. And uh, it's going to, um, if you'd like more information about that, you can uh, check their website out, which is uh, Morn Penaps. So I'll, I'll, I'll uh, spell that, M-O-R-N. P-E-N, so obviously for morning and Mornington Peninsula, but Morn Pen APS, which is Australian Plant Society, at gmail.com. I'll say that again, mornpenapps at gmail.com. And the other one I should mention quickly, Friends of Burnley, their next uh, talk is coming up on Wednesday the 29th of April. It's being held, of course, at Burnley College, 630 till 8.30 for an eat-in and talk. Now, it's an eat-in because um, it's uh, entitled Cooking with Clive and Clive, Mark, uh, Clive Lachman is uh, going to be the speaker. He has a passion for cooking and growing plants and so he's going to be actually uh, treating people to a four-course supper feast while he shows you how to uh, cook up a treat using gourmet food. So that would be a most interesting one. Uh, cost is $15 for members of Friends of Burnley Gardens, $25 for non-members. Bookings, of course, are essential for catering. You can phone 9035 6861 or to email, go to a.smith at unimelb.edu.au. That's a.smith at unimelb.edu.au. Okay, it's uh, high time we invited our listeners to join us. If you'd like to ask a gardening question this morning, we have uh, Penny Woodward, AB, and also Tim Sansom from uh, the Diggers Club in the studio this morning. Do give us a call. The number is 94190155. That's 94190155. Pam? Yes. Sorry, could I just mention a couple of talks that I've got coming up? Would sure. that be okay? Um, I'll just list them because there's a few. And okay. um, and then if people want more detail, they can go to my website at pennywoodwood.com.au. Okay. So I'm talking to the Geelong Herb Society on the, this coming Thursday, the 23rd of April, about garlic. 
um, the Amaru Neighbourhood Centre on Wednesday the 29th of April at 6.30 and talking about using culinary herbs but with a special emphasis on garlic. I'm doing a garlic workshop at Cloud Hill on the um, 2nd of May at 1 o'clock and then talking to the Mountain District Permaculture Group on the 14th of May. Um, also about garlic, surprise, surprise. So <laughs> if you've got any questions at all about garlic, there's a lot of um, venues that you can come along to and, and ask whatever questions you've got. Okay, okay. including chilies and um, herbs. Yeah, well, and we'll all sorts of... Sneak them in. Yes, <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. Okay, excellent. All right, now we have had uh, a listener on the outside line, Brian from Hyatt. Um, he says that he wants to plant a bare-rooted tree in a spot that's uh, currently has a dahlia bulb residing in the spot. Now, the dahlia still has green foliage. He's cut it back. Um, he wants to know if it's too early to lift the bulb. Thoughts? I think he's fine to lift the bulbs now. They're, I would they're pretty much so. going dormant. Yes. I mean, they might even still have green leaves, but we're really getting into the cold cold sign of the year. Yep. The ground will be getting cold enough. The tubers will have formed up enough. So I think all clear, lift the bulbs, plant the tree, and then... Yep plant them back again. Yep. I think the only thing you're possibly sacrificing is a bit of size and maybe a few flowers next yep. year because it may not have quite absorbed everything back into the bulb. But look, I, yeah, I agree with Tim. Yep, yep. I, I personally, my <coughs> preference would be to get the, the bare-rooted plant in the spot now rather than leaving it too much Absolutely. longer. I'm actually surprised he's got a bare-root tree already because yep. it's, the bare-root tree season is not really yet underway. Mm. So if... If it's a case of wanting to plant a bare root tree but he hasn't got it yet, then wait as long as he can Hold off, to, move, to move I, the, I, the bulbs. I'd rather imagine that he's probably got it or he's got it lined up ready to mm. arrive. So, yes, I'd, I'd be lifting the bulb, preparing that soil ready and getting it in the ground as quickly as possible before the roots dry out. On the, on the dahlia bulbs uh, or tubers, um, when I was working at Sud Earth, it was quite a heavy clay soil. Uh, and there were parts of the garden where we would have to lift dahlia tubers every year. Mm. Uh, and I know that in Winchelsea at uh, Jenny Parrish's dahlia farm, she lifts, I think, pretty much everything every year, wow. which is a huge job That's to do. That's enormous. And I know it's more of an English tradition because they have heavier, colder, wetter winters yep. and, the, and the tubers can rot, and that's the reason they do it. They dig yep. them up, put them in dry storage for the winter and then plant them again. But in most cases, in 90% of cases in Australia, you don't have to do that. Mm. Okay. And there's a lot of dahlias up at Garden of St Earth, isn't there? Yeah, we've got lots of dahlias. We've been collecting dahlias in all of our gardens, actually. In, in our trial gardens, we've, we're putting more and more into there to, to preserve some of the old ones. And, okay. And I would absolutely recommend, and the time has slightly passed, to go and visit Jenny Parrish's place. Um, I, I think she's called Country Farm Dahlias or Country Cottage Dahlias in Winchelsea. Uh, she's got a wonderful collection of all types, from the huge cactus and enemy types to the small single flower types, which are more what we look for because they more have a, an easier garden setting. Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, that number again, if you'd like to join us this morning and ask a gardening question, we'd love to hear from you. The number is 94190155. That's 94190155. Penny, what have you been up to apart from giving talks all over the countryside? <laughs> um, oh, look, I'm, I'm, I guess, work-wise, I'm working on next year's diary and calendar for organic gardening. Okay. We always have to work so far in advance, and it's, it's always a bit. I mean, I'm sure you do the same, Tim, but it's always a bit mind-blowing. You know, when you're thinking about 2016 and you've barely started in 2015. It's a, <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's that's me sitting at my computer in my garden. I've been planting um, brassicas, 
because the cabbage moths have pretty much disappeared and this bit of rain will finally get rid of any that have been hanging around, provided we have reasonable cold. Um, you know, because in some parts of, of Australia, you know, New South Wales, they can have cabbage moths all year round almost mm. just because it's it's warmer. Um, but we're lucky that we have this period that we're, you know, we don't see cabbage moths for about six months. And so that's when I grow my brassicas because then you don't have to worry about them. Mm. Um, Otherwise, it's a battle, isn't it? It is a battle. And, yes. I, and really, after having you know tried different things over many years, the only way to successfully combat cabbage moths at other times of the year is to net mm. the garden. Yes. And you need to net them as soon as you plant your seedlings. You don't wait until you start seeing damage on your seedlings because then... You've got the caterpillars there already, and all you're doing is netting the bloody things yeah. in, yeah. in there. Yeah. Yes, yes. you've contained the problem. Yes. In there. We, we actually so. similarly, well, we want to get um, our brassicas in quite early, uh, especially for our um, our kitchen garden at mm. Heronswood uh, and, and at Sir Earth too, because when the soil's still got some of that residual warmth from the summertime, you get a better flush yep. of growth and mm. you can get yep. an earlier crop in the middle of winter. But there's no question that if you're, pl- if you're planting while the weather's mm. still warm, it must be netted for those yep. pesty moths. Yeah, and look, it's not that hard to do. If you just use mm. a bit of irrigation pipe, create an upside-down U over the, over the garden bed and pull the net over the top of it. I mean, they're not sneaky like rats. They're not going to try and climb in underneath or anything like that. Yes. You know, they're, they're blatant, aren't they? Yeah, <laughs> yes. they're, they're yeah actually... they just go straight at yeah. it. And, and, and there's some, you, you would probably know this better than I, but there's some really good netting around these mm. days that are, will protect against frost, that will keep pests out, will even keep, some of it will keep fruit fly out. Yes, fruit and... fly is something that we're confronting a bit in Victoria We're starting now. to see. Yeah. Um, I, I still remember going to op shops and getting... Um, the curtains. curtains. Yeah, curtains. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And it's, it's fun, fantastic now and far be it for me to flog some products that we sell, but no, we but do I, actually I sell some vegetable important. nets yeah. uh, that are basically a box net um, sewn in a box fashion so they're really easy to just put some stakes in with a little frame and sit them over the top and it's... And, you don't have to have uh, a, I guess, a sort of hugger-mugger approach where you've got all mm. sorts of different shapes and sizes. You can actually do it quite neatly now mm. for, those, actually, for yeah. those who are more interested in a I neat I use one of those box nets over our peach tree mm. and, um, yeah, it was very effective. Mm. It kept kept everything out except the rats, of course. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, you've, um, you've brought in a few bits and pieces. I have. Why don't we have a chat about a couple okay. of them? Well, what I was... I've got to lean over here. Hang on, away from the microphone. I was up at Cloud Hill yesterday because I was up at the Tesla um, Garden Expo that you mentioned earlier. And the look, go to Cloud Hill at this time of the year in the next couple of weeks because the autumn show is spectacular. There is all sorts of wonderful things in all sorts of rich shades of colour. I would say similarly actually for the Garden of Sid Earth too. We, we're, both those two gardens that we, that we have in our roster are superb uh, autumn colour. But while I was at Cloud Hill yesterday chatting with Jeremy, I picked up a couple of things which I thought were of interest, some of which uh, people will have known about and others they may not have. I have a leaf here of uh, the Boston Ivy. Um, it's, this is a very not a very visual medium, so it's hard for me to, 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 to I'll, I'll do my best to, to, to explain it. It's three-lobed or tricuspid, uh, so it has a three-pointed leaf. It has quite a long, a long stem or a long petiole, so that the leaves actually sit quite a long way off the, um, the the structure that it's climbing on. So Boston ivy is a is a deciduous climber. Through the through the summer months, it's a rich green. Uh, it's a fantastic one for covering brick walls, mm. uh, even growing on pergolas and things like that. Um, 
One of the great things about it, aside from its autumn colour, which I'll get to in a sec, is that it actually will sort of hang and trail off a, a pergola or something like that. So you will see you will see branches um, like a curtain yes. effectively hanging down. Yes. And that can be a really lovely effect, um, both in the summertime when you're sitting underneath it when it's in leaf, and at this time of the year it looks like a sort of a cascading um, a, a waterfall of fiery, fiery foliage. The foliage itself, um, in terms of colour at this time of the year, starts off as a green, and I'm looking at a leaf here that's got elements of green in the veins too, um, which is the residual from the summer. Mm. And then it moves through these fiery red, vermilion, crimson and pink kind of glowing colours. It's a spectacular thing um, that I would thoroughly recommend people use if you've got a structure that you want to cover with something that's really attractive year-round. Um, even in the winter time, when it's sitting there with no, no leaves on it, the stems themselves still have a colour and, and a quality that I think is, that is useful in a garden. Tim, is it... Is it one of those plants which needs a really strong structure? It's one of the it's the the, the Boston ivies have a they're like little suction cups, so they need something to stick onto. Um, so if like they'll grow well on a shed, they'll grow well on a brick wall, they'll grow well on a pergola. Yes, I, I think if you you wouldn't put them, they're quite vigorous too. So I wouldn't put it on a little rose arbor or something like that because it will very soon pull it down yep. effectively because yep. it's 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 too big for that. Yeah. Um, after having battled ivy for. Many years in all sorts of places on the peninsula and sort of wild places. Is there any of that sort of issue with Boston no, Ivy? No, not at all. And, I mean, I, I live in Arthur's Seat and I look out into the bush and there is a couple of trees near my place, you know, eucalypt trees that have got ivy growing mm. up. That You see it quite a lot. This will not do that. Okay. Uh, and it, controlling it in the garden? Controlling in the garden enough? is really easy too. Okay. Um, it's, well, in fact, it's a bit of an, an annoyance that it has the name ivy in the name because mm. it's not an ivy at all. Mm. It's not. It's not in that. It's not in the same class of plants. But of course, the other beauty of, of any of these um, vines that are deciduous is that you're letting in your winter sunshine, and then having that that wonderful shade, and then the colour in autumn for for when you don't need the sun. That's right. So, so if you if you plant on a if you've got a, a north or a west-facing yes. pergola or structure. Ideal. It absolutely gives you that, that wonderful shade in the summer mm. and then all that lovely lighting in the winter and the warmth. So this is, this is something that, that we should always be thinking of in, our, in our, our planting decisions around our gardens is how can we maximise the elements that are around us mm. in our living space and inside and outside. If you've got a window that faces that direction, you don't want sun in the summer, Plant a climber, deciduous climber, and the sun will stream in in the winter, and Absolutely. your heating bills will go down. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yes, excellent. What else have you got there, Tim? I've got another climber, um, of a, uh, another deciduous climber. Which... That's such a beautiful colour. Yes, yeah, isn't it? Stunning. Can, can isn't everyone that? see that on yes. the radio? <laughs> well, you could describe. <laughs> it. I'm going to describe it. I'm going to test my. They're the my, size my of adjectives. a hand. These leaves. These so leaves. They're, they're, you yes, know, they're really impressive. Big leaves. This is a this is a, an ornamental grape. Um, so it's Vitus cognetiae, so and it's not a fruiting type, um, so which is attractive to some people and not so attractive for others. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there is actually a purple uh, grape uh, which is Vitus vinifera purpurea, which will produce fruit. Um, but I guess if you want fruit, it's a slightly different thing to growing this, which is a purely ornamental. So this is the crimson glory vine, is its common name, huge leaf. And crimson glory vine probably probably sets the tone for what it really is. I think so. Because it is a, is a glorious thing. It's very, very vigorous. So if you've got a big pergola or a big space, it'll cover it quite happily. Uh, but its autumn colour is absolutely splendid. It's, mm. it, is, it is a deep, deep 
uh, rich red. Um, the colours between the veins, the veins themselves go quite sort of scarlet colour and you get deep, dark blood colours in between. Uh, and it'll go from those shades through to orange as the leaves fall. Yes. It's a really spectacular thing. And a really deep shade in the summer, back to our point earlier about it, this is something that, that will give you that that really deep shade in the summertime to protect you from the hot sun mm. and then wonderful autumn colour in transition. Mm. Excellent. I have to say I'm always perplexed why people will plant a um, ornamental grape rather than a, an edible grape. But um, with the Vitus vinifera purpurea that you were mentioning, um, is the purpurea referring to the leaf? or yeah, yes, so it's, yes. it's, it's still a, a green grape. but so it's, it's, it's a green grape, yep. but the leaf is purple. Yep. It's not a very common one in cultivation, um, but if you're looking for something that is kind of crossing both, yeah. which is ornamental and has an edible uh, or has, has a fruit, then it's one I would seek out. Um, and, and people do seek things that are that don't produce the fruit uh, so they you know they don't want the mess if you like and and, and that's and they don't want the wasps they don't want the wasps they don't no. want yeah. yeah so and i can whilst personally i would be looking for something that's mm. got an edible uh, i'm looking for multifunction in everything i plant i can yeah. understand there's a need for that and it is if you just look at it from beauty alone it is a spectacular thing i don't think any of the the other grapes the edible grapes get this kind of color yeah but for one that's really not available as much here. I've seen it in the States, but I'd love to get it here. It's a variety called Concord, which has a very similar leathery leaf to this one, which is quite distinct from the normal vinifera. Mm. Mm. And, and look, in a way, they are multi-purpose because you've got the leaves mm. and you've Absolutely. got fabulous compost as a result of it. So, yes, and we, yes. we don't think about that enough when we're thinking about deciduous mm. plants is how important it is. I, have to, I don't have a lot of deciduous plants and I used to go up and rake up all my neighbours' leaves but they've sold and the people who've bought it want their own leaves. (laughs) It's becoming a scarce commodity. It's a bit scarce at the moment. (laughs) You might have to plant a few more deciduous. Well, I was just thinking thinking, what can I take out to put some more deciduous plants in? (laughs) Oh dear. Okay, let's go to our first caller and uh, we have Elizabeth who's down in Frankston. Good morning, Elizabeth. Oh, good morning. Um, I was listening um, to the program, as I always do, and I was very interested to see uh, hear about the um, seed storage. I think it's a very interesting uh, project, and uh, I've heard other uh, people, I think uh, there's a pr- big project even in um, Greenland or Iceland, and one of those... Uh, That's places. right, yes. But my problem at the moment is um, watching some of the garden shows and books... I, I had a pot of nareems and the leaves were getting quite straggling wet and I planted them, not tightly but loosely, thinking, oh, well, they'll still get the sun and the nutrients <clears throat> through those leaves. But in getting air to the bulbs, um, the um, nareem flowers have come to life quickly and, and, and almost in full bloom. My theory is because they normally come up before the foliage, do I leave them as is or do I remove the foliage? I would let them do what they're doing. Mm, I, yes. you know, I don't think you should interfere with with what your plant's doing. It's doing it for a reason, mm. and it may have something to do with you know the slightly weird weather that we're having. There's mm. a lot of plants doing some unusual things. Mm. Um, I, I'd let them settle in. Yeah. Yes. I would too. I think I think it, plants will often do odd yep. things. They don't always go to script, um, <laughs> and that doesn't yes. mean we should try and force them to the script. If, if they're doing something, it sounds like it's healthy enough. It's, so long as the foliage is healthy and it's looking like it's growing okay, then I would be happy to leave it there. Yes. Well, I, I, thank you. I, I, I'm saying we're on the, long, the same line of thought. It's just that with the plant, 
uh, when I say the braids, uh, it's almost like a thick rope. Uh, they have knocked some of the stems as they were growing, and I thought, well, it's going to be a problem knocking off the flower heads because, I mean, over the years they've been in the pot, yes, sometimes they flower and very well, and other times, well, they've, they've remained dormant, but they, they do come back. So just leave, leave, leave them to take care of themselves. I would personally. And yeah. uh, they won't reflower again during, later during the year. Anything's possible, oh. but unlikely. Yeah. yeah, it's likely that they'll... They've either gone through some sort of shock in this replanting and they'll get into a more scripted pattern next yes, year. Yes, mm. that's yeah. what I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, like yourself, I can only conclude that it's probably the weather, the extremes of the weather, and like I said, even maybe braiding the leaves, they've got more warmth on them in the last couple of um, weeks than they would have had and it's just brought them on. Yes, yep. I Indeed. think you're right. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That number, if you'd like to join us this morning, we'd love to hear from you. Nine four one nine zero one double five. That's nine four one nine zero one double five. We have Penny Woodward, uh, Tim Sanson from Diggers, and AB in the studio this morning. So, do give us a call. Tim, you've got something else there, I think. I've got a few other bits and pieces. Good. Um, we we. Touched on dahlias earlier when there was the, the query about lifting dahlias uh, for the, the bare root tree planting. Uh, and we're, we're a little late in the season now, but this has been a wonderful year for dahlias. And I'm, we're always on the lookout at diggers for what we consider to be dahlias that work in a garden. If you'd asked me the question about dahlias five or ten years ago, I probably would have turned my nose up and said, oh, they're those horrible, ghastly things that people put. And my, my recollection of dahlias was tomato steaks with stockings. Yes, in yes. A, in, a, in a front yard in rows. <laughs> and it wasn't very attractive. No, no, it wasn't a garden as such. It yes, was, it was, well, the it flowers was... were fabulous. That's but, right. But the combined effect of all these That's steaks right. and stockings and, and stuff. In, and, in fact, there is a whole... There is a whole um, movement of showing dahlias, mm. and, and, and that movement is really about the flower itself and just yep. looking simply at the flower, um, which I can see some merit in, and, and there is some wonderful specimens out there. But what we're looking for are the sort of dahlias that will work in a garden setting. They'll work uh, in amongst other plants. Uh, and some of the, the varieties that we've been looking at are the single-flowering varieties. I've got a variety here called Home Run, which is a... Would you call that a cerise kind of colour? Yeah. I'm, I'm not very cerise. good at cerise. Yeah. Is that yep. the right expression? Yep. Um, it also has a dark stem and a, and, a, and a dark green leaf. There are quite a lot of uh, dahlias around that have a, a, a black leaf. Um, mm. And many listeners will be familiar with uh, a red-flowered black leaf variety called the Bishop of Landaf, yes. which is one we've been doing for many, many years and I think has a, has a real place in, in border, herbaceous border gardening and mixed plantings. Um, but we're looking at some of the green leaf ones and different different foliage colours and flowers. This one is a single flower with, with yellow stamens. Uh, and this comes from the breeding of a New Zealand breeder called Keith Hammett. Uh, who've, he does sweet peas. He does well, sweet peas, he does yeah. dianthus uh, yeah. and clivias as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I've known Keith for a few years now and we've um, been sort of talking around what, what are some of the things that are appropriate for Australian gardeners. In fact, with, on the sweet peas, we did a trial of sweet peas at, at um, Dramana a couple of years ago and I fed some of that information mm-hmm. back to him about different sowing times. Um, and I, I won't digress into that for now, but perhaps we can talk about sweet peas a bit later. Um, but... I think that there is a great scope for dahlias in gardens. Uh, they're 
they're not a, a drought-tolerant plant necessarily. I wouldn't put them in a, in a rockery or a one-drip garden, but they're a wonderful pot specimen for patios. Uh, and also, if, you're, if you've got a mixed border with, with things like um, echinaceas um, and uh, some of the grasses like miscanthus and things like that, they're a wonderful little highlight that can pop up in all sorts of places in, in a planting like that. Um, both uh, at, at St Earth and, as we mentioned before, and at Cloud Hill, there are excellent examples of, of, of dahlias integrated into garden beds that work uh, in, a, in a context with other plants. Mm. So they're, they're a plant that are flowering now, and I, you know, they're at the tail end as we come into winter, but I would absolutely encourage people to, to investigate dahlias. Yep, wonderful. Okay, let's go next to uh, Ruth, who's in Bentley East. Good morning, Ruth. Good morning, everyone. Oh, excuse me. Um, I've got two quick, well, fairly quick questions. I've been with diggers for over 35 years now, and I've had a lot of help from them over the time. Um, But on one of the Australian gardening, the TV programs, um, Jeremy was talking about, uh, Jerry was talking about lamb's cress as companion planting, and I want to know if diggers have got the seeds for that companion planting with the brassicas. Um, can I just say it's it's land cress, so oh, land is it? Yeah, land, cress, yes. and it's Barbaria vulgaris, um, and it's funny how something like this can generate so many questions because I've had so many people asking a yes. similar similar question, and and um, you probably do have land, Chris. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure, yeah. but it, it, it's an interesting um, theory that that Jerry has because, to me, it's not entirely logical. I mean, I've I've grown land crest for years. I've grown it with with my brassicas. I've grown it in other parts of the garden. It's a fabulous plant for its hot, spicy leaves. It's like watercress, but it just grows on the land. I use it in winter salads because it's this time of year that it starts coming up. Um, and by all means, plant it with your brassicas. Uh, the theory is that the butterflies will land on it, will lay their eggs on it, the eggs will hatch, the caterpillars will come out and start eating the leaves and it will kill them. But it doesn't actually stop them from also laying eggs on your cabbages. Mm-hmm. So you will, you'll deter some of them. Some of them will end up on the land crest and, and then won't survive. But it doesn't repel them from the cabbages so it's a good element in the whole control of of um of cabbage moth but it's not the complete answer so as we were talking about before really it's the it's the netting is the only way that you will totally control cabbage moth or planting at this time of year when they're not around um but tim sorry i I absolutely agree no and i agree with everything you said penny i think the, that land crest, and I've heard this, this discussion as well, inspired yeah. by that. Um, I think what we're talking about is the companion planting and how yeah. plants work together. Mm. Uh, and it's always encouraged diversity and always encouraged having lots of different bits and pieces in the garden and land crest with brassicas is, is, is a, a good combination, I imagine. But I agree it's not going to be the panacea that's going to solve the problem. Oh, well, thanks for that part. And, uh, <laughs> Everyone wants a quick fix, but it doesn't quite yeah. work that way. <laughs> oh, no, no. When you've been gardening for so long, you know that. Yes. Um, no, yes, so for most of these years I've been in our garden, I've built up the soil quite well, but I do have a few sandy-ish sort of patches still. And I would like to know a bit more about Loro petalum. I don't know if I'm saying it the right way. Yep. 
Um, and when I look it up, while it says good for coastal areas, um, it doesn't. I can't see much about watering requirements. Does anyone know anything about this plant? Um, from my knowledge, Ruth, it's um, fairly fairly water hardy. As in, you, you won't, it doesn't need a lot of water except during establishment time. But once you know, if you give it a bit of water um, every week or so, or every couple of weeks for a year, then after then it, it is um, yeah quite um, quite water hardy. Okay, and um, uh, I was sort of tossing up between that and um, oh. Good. One of the cottonuses. Can you? Um, you look, I, I've been growing, um, and I'm pretty sure I've got the right one. That's the one where there's been fairly recently some purple leaf forms yeah. of it. Yes, which are really nice. And I've I've been growing it, not, admittedly not on entirely sandy soil. My soil's a bit heavier, but it's in a part of the garden where it doesn't get watered. And it survived really well. Oh, okay. Um, and I love the purple-leafed form. I've got mm. it growing near the uh, purple-leafed smoke bush, and the two mm. complement each other beautifully. And I think that's what was it. Ruth was she yeah. was just saying yeah. you're you interested in the cottonus. Yeah. And the cottonus. Well, I was tossing up between the cottonus or this. I don't know if I've got room for both. Although, mind you, I tend to. If I see a little space, I tend to put, put something, something in. I yes. think the Laura Patalum is better in a smaller space. The cottonous Grace can... It'll if be Grace big. is the purple one, it yes. gets bigger. Now, we actually, with Grace, we coppice that every year okay. in order yeah. to keep it small and keep the foliage new and, and vibrant. Um, but that's a bit of an effort to do. It is probably a bit hardier. I would have said the cottonous Grace, or, or cottonous in general, is probably a bit hardier than the... Than the Laura Patel. Yeah, but they're very different growth habits. But they're aren't quite they? different. They're yeah. different so situations. one's growing, you've got a small tree. Yes, and, yes. One's, and, and one the other is shrub. a very yeah. low yeah. growing mm. shrub. Mm. Yeah. Well, well, I think I better stick to the low growing then because mm. it would be in front of a ginkgo that I got from diggers. Oh, that'd be a really <laughs> nice combination. Yes, be interesting it would be. to have the purple, of, or if you're doing purple, mm. um, the purple. Of well, you, you see, with the ginkgo, you get the lovely the soft golden, green, and then and the, the gold yeah. this time of the year. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, thank you very much for that, and I'll keep on battling with the cabbage butterfly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Best of luck. Bye. Thank you. Okay. That number again. If you'd like to join us this morning, nine. 9- Four one nine zero one double five. That's nine four one nine zero one double five. Um, got anything else there for us, Tim? Yes, I've got a couple of little things. Um, I've got a feathery grass. So this is, uh, and I'm fondling it because it's so tactile to touch on the radio. <laughs> um, this is, many of, many listeners will be aware of miscanthus. There's lots of miscanthus around. It's a tall grass um, that's used, uh, it's, I think it's African in origin, I think, most of the miscanthuses. Uh, and there's many species. Um, there's one species that we sell called Giganteus, which has actually got some promise as a biofuel. They, um, it's it's a, an accumulator of biomass and is being used commercially in parts of the world to produce ethanol fuel. Um, but it's not necessarily the most ornamental one, even if it's the biggest one. Okay. This one I'm looking at here is an incredibly ornamental one. It's called Miscanthus nepalense, um, and it has the, the, the orns or the flowers are 
golden, the rich golden colour. If you see this in, in the autumn sunshine at this time of the year in the backdrop of, of uh, some of the deciduous vines and trees we've been looking at, it really does glow. Uh, it's, it's one that we've been experimenting a bit in our trial gardens, and I know Jeremy's got it up at Cloud Hill. Um, it's one that's not very common in the marketplace. Um, we're looking to put it into our catalogue at some stage in the future, um, but it's one of those ones that's a bit difficult to propagate. Uh, but keep an eye out for Miscanthus nepalense. It's a beautiful thing, a bit different, and really an autumn spectacular plant. Mm. Tim, do, do the Miscanthus have weed problems? We've been growing Miscanthus for years, and I get this question particularly yeah, at Sudurth. That's, that's, that's why I'm asking, because I know people ask. Yeah, so. Yeah. We, um, Sudurth, if, if you haven't been there, is in the middle of the Wombat State Forest, so it is completely surrounded by a state park on all boundaries. So we were quite sensitive about what we plant there in terms of its garden escapes. Mm-hmm. And I had many questions. People would come in and say, oh, that one looks weedy. You know, surely it mm-hmm. escapes. I've never seen uh, miscanthus seedlings of any note. One or two in a, in a very boggy spot, but it's not the sort of thing that's going to escape into, into undisturbed or even dis- disturbed bushland. Yeah. Which is interesting because the amount of seed on there it looks like it would be yes, yeah. and that's probably what inspires the question, mm. you know. But it may not be fertile seed, yeah. so you know, with the, um, a lot of the cultivars. Well, the we seeds we propagate um, all our miscanthus by division, so in, it's very hard as mm. as propagators as we are, and we've been growing plants for thirty odd years. We've never grown miscanthus from mm-hmm. seed, so that probably tells the story. Is itself. that because you can't? We can't. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. I'm sure someone probably can. Yeah, but it's uh, well. It's a matter of germination rates too. Is if you know if we put a thousand seed down and get five to germinate, then that's not really going to be very useful for our members when mm. we put it in the catalogue. So it's it's really about where the numbers lie, and yep. we can do better out of, of clonal propagation through through division. Yeah, well, mm. very good to know that it doesn't um, propagate easily via seed mm. if you are planting. That's then, right. Yeah, gardens mm. that are close to bush. Mm. Mm. Okay, well, I'm excited to say that um, online we have David Jones, all the way from uh, New South Wales online. Um, David, of course, is um, an author, a very prolific author and uh, botanist. Good morning, David. Hello, Pam. How are you? Well, thank you. Now, David, a lot of our listeners, um, I think, would obviously associate your name with the um, huge nine-volume Encyclopedia of Australian Plants suitable for cultivation, of course, which you uh, co-authored. Um, but they know maybe not so much about this uh, new uh, re-release or revised edition of a book that you've had out recently. Before we go into into this new book, um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Because you've done some amazing things, I have to say, just just reading through your profile, um, you you uh, have were totally interested, which got really got you going with orchids. You've done a lot of work with orchids. You've travelled all over Australia and up to New Guinea. Um, tell listeners a little bit about what you've done. Um, well, you just said it. <laughs> no, no, you've done a lot more than that. <laughs> yeah, basically, I started. Um, I had an, an elderly, elderly aunt who lived in the Dandenongs and she was mad keen on native plants and basically, uh, particularly native orchids, a little ground orchid. So I started off on that very young and um, then moved on to other plants and then, uh, well, I've done, as you say, I've travelled a fair bit. I'm quite interested in the tropics. I'm very interested in different groups of plants like palms and ferns and, and those sort of things. Mm. But then I got a... Um, I had a bit of a mid. I used to work for the Department of Ag in Victoria, and I had a midlife crisis, 
moved to Queensland and started a nursery and tried to grow, well, we grew native plants but tried to sell them in, in Queensland and it's um, a bit of a battle up there. Right. So my, my interest changed to, to writing and um, to, to get information on the plants, of course, you could go out in the bush and that's what I did. Mm. Mm, fantastic. And I got a, I was lucky, I got an opportunity to work in with um, Botanic Gardens in Canberra and then CSIRO and I was able to research our native orchids. Excellent. Okay, now um, you, you're hiding your light, behind, you know, under a bushel a bit because um, you're also at one stage a researcher out at what was then the old uh, Scoresby Hort Research Station. God, that's a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, but but through that work, um, you actually developed um, soilless potting mixes, which is, I mean, it's it started the whole process of what we use today. Uh, yeah, that was a team approach. Actually, I worked with uh, Dave Nichols. He was a great great guy to work with, another bloke, David Beersel. Mm-hmm. And uh, we we sort of, um, the nursery industries looked after us and we went out into the different industries looking for materials that, uh, waste materials that could possibly be used in potting mixes. Things like sawdust and rice hulls and even um, even um, crump, uh, crunched up tyres, basically. Um, and then we got onto pine bark and that sort of stuff, so it progressed from there. Right. But we weren't the only ones working on it. CSIRO also had a very good team working on it as well. Yes, excellent. Now, to get back to to uh, the book that's just been um, re-released, now it is a completely revised edition from the original one that you published back in 1986, isn't it? That's correct, yeah. Yep. Um, we should, of course, give the title of the book, Pests, Diseases, Ailments and Allies of Australian Plants. Yeah, it's a mouthful. <laughs> it is a bit of a mouthful. But um, you have co-authored this with our good friend Roger Elliott and yep. also with your daughter, Sandra Jones. Yeah, that's correct. Yep. Yep. Now, um, I, was, I was intrigued to open up the book and read the dedication and that dedication says to those people who are against the indiscriminate use of pesticides in our environment. So great, congratulations on taking that stand because um, I think you, you mentioned that the whole point of the book is to try to help people identify problems but to go on maintaining the ecology of the garden, to not rush for the quick chemical fix as so many people want to do. Yeah, that's correct. Um... When I was in the Department of Ag, I saw some really horrific things that happened with, over uh, with dis, un, you know indiscriminate str- spraying, basically. And um, I also grew up in the time. <coughs> excuse me, I've got a bad throat. I also ended, grew up in the time when outer suburbs of Melbourne were developing quite rapidly, and we had large areas of bush being cleared and gardens planted, and mm. all the pests from the local area. Well, they weren't pests. All the Insects and animals from the local areas, of course, would move into the garden because that's where they used to live once. Mm. And uh, Roger and I had this experience of all sorts of really unusual, um, well, infestations of things that, you know, we, but basically very little was known about at the time. Right, right. Now, what I am I'm really love about the book is the whole troubleshooting section you've got at the start and the quite elaborate um, descriptions you have for actually how to use the book. And it all comes down to wanting the the reader 
to actually go out firstly and observe exactly what the problem is on their particular plant, don't you? That's correct. We can't do it. You can't do anything unless you accurately identify the, the problem. Mm. Um, and I'm afraid it's, it's not an approach that's commonly taken, really. Um, the, <coughs> unfortunately, the fallback is always to go to the nursery, describe the problem, and he'll suggest a chemical, yes, chemical solution. And yes. I, I, <coughs> I think that's the wrong approach myself. Mm-hmm. That's what we've tried to get over in the book. Yes. To um, identify the culprit accurately, really see if it is causing a problem, wait for a little bit, because often in gardens or in any, even in nature, you get infestations of, of pests and then they're followed by uh, a build-up of predators, which often um, reduces the problem completely. Mm, mm. So at, at the start of each chapter, you've got um, symptoms and recognition features um, and uh, so you look at all sorts of manner of things like um, damage to young shoots, you look at um, damage to individual leaves, damage to bark and wood, um, damage to roots. So you're really asking um, the gardener to really go out there and inspect exactly what is happening um, and then from there to work out whether, firstly, whether it is a pest that you really need to be alarmed about and do something about or whether it is, as you mentioned, it, it's it's not going to be that much of a, of a disaster and let it be and just, just keep an eye on it. And and if you manage from, from going through, well, it's virtually like a very comprehensive checklist, you then even follow that up with um, photo shortcuts with lots and lots of wonderful photos demonstrating what some of these um, these symptoms might be. Yeah, well, that's correct. That That's the approach and... The uh, symptom sort, shortcut sort of came out as a brainwave, really. Just an inspiration. One day I was working in the garden and had this idea that um, it really could aid uh, the identification of problem areas by just having those series of photos. Mm. And it's, I think it's worked out pretty well, actually. I think it's wonderful because so often, I mean, we'll get callers here online saying something's nibbling my leaves, but yeah. there is such a variety of what a nibble... Um, constitutes what it looks like, whether it's actually, um, you know, um, nibbling from around the edges, whether it's it's actually sucking out um, all the moisture from the leaf. There's such a variety, and these these photos help the the reader to identify what might well be the problem. And yeah, well, and then yes, that's certainly the idea. Yes, yep. no, it's fantastic. Um, it's a it's a huge tome of a book, David. Yeah, well, it's. Uh... The initial writing was pretty simple, really, for the for the uh, for, sorry for the first edition. But since then, I mean, after we did that one, you sort of walk around with your eyes open, looking when or taking note when you see something unusual. And and uh, I mean, that's basically another twenty years uh, sort of research from the original volume that's sort of in in the latest one. Right. Well, it certainly it certainly shows. It's incredible and um, wonderful photos throughout. We should also mention um, line drawings by yourself and also, of course, uh, the wonderful Trevor Blake who did line drawings in the um, in the encyclopedias as well. Yep. And and they all go to give uh, to give the reader really really accurate information as to as to what's going on with their Australian plants. So I really congratulate you on that. Just to give um, readers an idea, um, just to just to mention some of the actual um, 
uh, chapters, for instance, um, apart from introduction and all the troubleshooting at the beginning, you go into things like beneficial organisms, which I'm so pleased you put up towards the front of the book, yeah. um, but then into things like um, sap-feeding pests, gall-inducing organisms, chewing pests mainly feeding on leaves, flowers and fruit, chewing pests mainly feeding on wood, bark and roots, miscellaneous pets, pests, and that's even before we get into um, diseases, nutritional disorders and all sorts of other ailments. So the, it's just a, a fantastic resource for anybody. So I, I really do congratulate you on all of that. Um, good. Yeah, thank you. Yes. What was the role that your daughter had in, in the book? Uh, well, she's, uh, she's sort of specialised in pesticides. Right. Um, and uh, and she oversaw the whole thing. I mean, she's more computer literate than I am. <laughs> uh, she was able to help with photos and, and uh, that sort of stuff. Right. Uh, and she's really keen on looking at an even more modern approach uh, to things. Excellent. Like, for example, we, we, we continually stumble across the problem of trunk injections. You've got a large tree that's got some sort of bug in it. How do you control it? Well, mm. I mean, it's mostly completely impractical. Yes. Uh, you still get this idea of boring a hole in the trunk and pouring a toxic insecticide into the hole, and which goes up through the sap stream and basically kills anything. anything That's that right. Anything in contact with it, good or bad. Yes. Um, and often the insecticide that's used is inappropriate for the particular bug. So that was a, a major hurdle that we, we came across and we sort of stumbled through it, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, it's still, in, it's still recommended by some authorities, but I just can't see how we can keep it going on environmental ground. Well, exactly, exactly. So, so David, Aby here, first of all, congratulations on a fantastic uh, revision. Um, I'm just wondering, in that situation, what is your rec- recommendation? Uh, well, we, we recommend you don't do it, and, and there's no practical control uh, of pests on a large tree. So just uh, just about keeping the tree as healthy as possible? Yeah, that's correct. And I should say that uh, for some specialised trees like heritage trees, and that's something may, may, necessar- may be necessary, but for general garden trees, no. Yeah. The other thing I'm interested to know is over the years since you um, put out the original uh, book, have your have the amount of insects changed or, or the type of insects changed that um, you are finding to be in gardens? Uh, no, not really. Not the insects, yep. but we've got influxes of things like uh, from overseas, like myrtle rust, yep. uh, which is a big worry. Um, if you listen to some of our friends in Queensland, they say that it's causing quite well havoc in in some bushland areas. It certainly causes havoc in gardens. Yeah, and it is. It's uh, spreading down from the north, isn't it? Well, it's been record- just recently been recorded in Tasmania from about sixteen different sites, I think. So. Mm. I mean, quarantine is obviously not not very effective. Uh, was, the movement of plants into Tassie was supposed to be restricted, or uh, at least uh, the plants analysed before they were allowed in. But that didn't work. And the problem with something like that is that once it gets into the bush, well, there's no control. That's right. Yes. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to be gloomy. <laughs> Oh, well, I think, I think your book is going to go a long way towards hopefully at least trying to convince people to not just, just go out there and, and grab a chemical and, and to learn more, if nothing else, to, to observe more and to learn more and maybe in, 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 
in in that process we might be able to to come to understand more how these things spread and and how to contain them at least yeah yeah i think the other message is that not everything you come across in the garden's a pest Exactly. I mean, there's a classic example. Every or every so often, there you get these masses of soldier beetles that appear around our eucalypt. Mm. They don't do any harm at all, basically. Mm. But because of their huge numbers, people get frightened. People panic. Them. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Excellent, um, David. The book I think is absolutely fantastic. Congratulations to you and to Sandra and to Roger for for absolutely revising the whole thing. I think it's very much um, needed as a reference for all of us. Um, now, it's been published by New Holland. Yep. Um, 440 pages long, and it's only $45. So I, I think that's amazing. It's within the price range of, of any gardener to be able to have that because it's such a magnificent reference. Yeah, good. So um, I don't know how you managed to keep the pricing down on that one because... Uh, to me, looking at the book, it's worth a lot more. But um, I, I really, I really do think you've, you've um, given us all something that's that's going to be around for years and years, and that will really provide us with excellent, um, uh, really accurate information. So, so well done to the three of you. Okay, thank you very okay, much. Okay, thanks for talking to us this morning. No problem. Bye. Bye. And uh, as I say, uh, the book is called Pests, Diseases, Ailments and Allies of Australian Plants. As I mentioned, it's co-authored by David Jones, Roger Elliott and Sandra Jones with line drawings by Trevor Blake and David Jones. It is published by New Holland and uh, it retails there for $45. So um, if you're at all interested in Australian natives, it is a fantastic reference. Okay, we have a listener who's been waiting very patiently. We're going to Anne, who's in Heidelberg. Good morning, Anne, and thank you for waiting. Hello, Pam and everyone. Um, it's an interesting segue into what I was calling about. Okay. Because two weeks ago I did a, a, an introductory workshop on beneficial insects by Angelica Cameron. Um, it was at the Boona Community Garden, and... It was an introduction and there seemed to be a lot of information, but the thing that I took away from it was that I can actually, with my, um, well, what do you call it, magnifying glass, go out and look at, and find, look at the plant, you know, turn the, the leaves of the Tuscan kale over and underneath I can, I can look for the cabbage white butterfly eggs and that's what I've done. Every morning I've gone out and I've turned the leaves over and found lots of eggs and destroyed them and found tiny little butterflies that are just being born. And I'm squashing them and I've found um, caterpillars and I've been squashing the caterpillars and my kale is now growing instead of being totally eaten and destroyed. And I've even gone out at 10 o'clock at night with a torch and I found slugs and snails. Um, that's, that's the best thing that I've taken away, but there's a whole lot of information that Angelica gave in the workshop. And it's kind of like opened a whole new world, I think. And it's wonderful to be able to have kale growing in the garden. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh so, I think you've hit the nail on the head about going out with a torch at night. That is a wonderful way of identifying exactly what pest you are dealing with. Yeah. 
I think you really need to educate yourself because what my thinking is is, well, maybe there are other things other than cabbage white butterfly. Maybe there are beneficial insect eggs on the back of the um, the leaf, and you know, I don't, I'm not familiar with all the eggs and all the different signs and indicators of, you know, what are the good bugs and what are the bad bugs. Mm. So. I think she said there was a book by Dennis Crawford. Yes, that's come out recently. Yeah. Yes. And uh, so, as she said, it's an introductory workshop and it's up to each person to go and find out more mm. because I don't want to be destroying the beneficial um, bugs' eggs and I might be doing that too. But, I mean, I'm so wrapped that I've, I can't believe the population of of these uh, white cabbage butterfly eggs. Like, they're just prolific. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's Penny anyway, here. Anyway, that's, that's just what I wanted to share with people. And maybe look out for Angelica's workshops. I, I think she's running one at series. Okay. Um, and she works at a company called IPM Technologies. And, mm. uh, yeah, just fantastic and so worth it as an alternative to spraying all these harmful chemicals. Excellent. And this is where um, a reference book like the one I've talked about this morning or like Dennis Crawford's book comes in because because there's photos and there's illustrations of beneficial insects, not just your pests. And, and yeah. I think the more gardeners can learn to recognise beneficial insects um, and leave them well alone and, and uh, you know, embrace them into their garden environment, yeah. um, the better off we'll all be and the less problems we'll have. Well, Angelica's done, she's done a little handout of some of the beneficial insects and taken all the photos of the different life stages, you know, the eggs, the juvenile, the pupa and the adult, and she's um, very carefully given measurements of what each particular stage will be, but I'm sure it's much more extensive than that. But it was just the most fantastic and helpful workshop Excellent. And look, I highly recommend it to to anyone who's interested in gardening without chemicals. Mm. Penny, I think look, you I was to just say going something? to say, look, I think, um, Anne's Penny speaking, um, I think the most important starting point for all of this is not to use um, broad spectrum insecticides in the garden. So even if they're organic, um, don't use pyrethrum, don't use neem, don't use those things un- unless you absolutely have to because you've tried everything else and there's no alternative. Because yeah. even if you haven't identified um, your beneficials, you're going to kill them if you use any sort of broad-spectrum insecticide. And I just don't use them in my garden yeah. at all, ever. And she said echo oil. Really? Echo, echo oil is good, um, but again, if you you can, one of the reasons it's good is you can target your specific insects. But if there are beneficials there as well, you're going to kill your beneficials. Well, yeah, she wasn't in favour of echo oil them. at all, and she said it can be really deceptive because it's got the word echo in it. That yeah. you think, okay, you're not going to do any harm, but she said you really need to. If you're using echo oil, you've got to target exactly yeah. target the pest. And that's impossible to do. So if you do a general spray, it's, echo oil is like a broad-spectrum um, spray. And so it's going to kill all the beneficials as well. So she wasn't in favour of echo, yeah, the, echo the, oil. And one of the differences between the two is that um, something like echo oil only affects what it touches. 
whereas some of the other sprays um, actually sit around on the leaves and anything that eats it uh, is affected. Or they actually get into the plant. And so there are gradations of really bad sprays and not so bad sprays. Mm. And, and, uh, you know, but the starting point should be to do nothing. Yeah. And that's where what you've been saying, which is the observation is really important. Yes, well, the, I'm just so wrapped that that's I've got great. kale in the garden yeah, and rather I think, than eating, eating just stalks. Yeah, and Tim, you had something I, I was to just say? going to say <clears throat> that observation is your number one weapon. And mm. it should always be the first, the, the, the default position should be observe before you act. And I think um, a book like David's gives us the, the tool to mm. to take that observation and yeah. turn it into some action, absolutely, uh, an appropriate action rather than if the first reaction every time is just to nuke everything. Yes, then you've not learnt anything and yeah. you've done damage. So yes, it's, it's observation is obs- absolutely where you should start. Mm. And the magnifying glass is amazing too because there's so much there that you don't even realise and you can't always see. Just you know, very easily. Well, I wear glasses, so. Um, I don't know. I just found the magnifying glass was really helpful and a little kneeler. And yes. you just get down get in the close. garden yeah. and turn the leaves over and check everything out with a magnifying glass. Yes. Well, sometimes you don't even need the magnifying glass, but it, when you yeah, use it, Yeah, I have it, to say, I've um, got a glass more. house and it's a, mm. obviously a very different Absolutely. situation um, Thank you. dealing with okay, pests thanks, and diseases Bye. in a glass house because it's a completely different environment to outside. And I find that white fly is one pest which builds up really, really quickly, just, you know, a humid environment and well protected from the elements. So I just have a little spray bottle with my own mix of chilli, garlic and a, and a touch of detergent and the second I see them I just give a quick spray on that mm. and I think also given that it's a glass house situation there's not going to be that um, build up of beneficial insects yeah. unfortunately. So you don't have the total environment inside the glass house. That's correct, yeah. yeah. We, we in our production nursery we, we apply the integrated pest management techniques um, that are appropriate for a production nursery. So we actually do bring in beneficial insects. We intentionally okay. import them and release yes. them into our environment. And we've and and just continuing on Anne's um, observations of using the, the kneeler and the magnifying glass, we've actually now got um, microscopes that we've hooked up to our our computers. Uh, we can now more accurately identify or photograph something that we don't know mm. as a little pest or in, on, a, on a leaf, and we send that off to be identified so that we always know what it is we're dealing with. Mm. Uh, again, going back to my point about observation and knowledge, and when you know it's whitefly, yes, yeah. you know, and you can see where it's happening and you're yep. observing, you can hit it at a small scale without having to do the broad spectrum. Yeah, And I think the other thing that we often don't take into account and increasingly we need to take into account is the use of fungicides. And the fact that the soil is full of beneficial fungi that are absolutely essential to good soil health. Every time you use a fungicide, if it drips into the soil, you're killing that fungi in the soil. So that that old habit of winter washing Mm. fruit trees is something that you really shouldn't do unless it is absolutely essential because of problems that you've had. But just as a precautionary thing, I don't think it should be done. And if you do have to do it, you should be protecting the soil by putting... You know, plastic sheets to catch the fungicide so it doesn't go into the soil. And the other thing that you then do is after you've used a fungicide, if you have to use it, um, you quickly put compost back in the soil so that you're getting the important fungi 
back into the soil mm. as quickly as possible. Yeah. Um, and that's a whole world that we, you know, we've, yeah. we're all, we've, you know, all of us, all of us here have been for many years not spraying pests, but I'm not sure that we have all been not killing our fungi. And, mm. and increasingly we're becoming aware of how important fungi is. And, you know, when you see the mushrooms or the toadstools coming up in the garden, you shouldn't be knocking them all off or thinking that they're a pest or a problem. They're an integral part of, you know, the myceliums that are underneath the soil that yeah. are absolutely essential to the whole um, the whole soil the food whole web, web. The soil um, web, yeah, that's With right. the feeding of your plants and the fungi are essential to get that exchange of elements between the plants and the soil and the bugs in the soil. Yeah, there's a lot going on down there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we're going to go to Elizabeth in Preston. Good morning, Elizabeth. You there, Elizabeth? No, we seem to have lost Elizabeth. We might see if uh, Elizabeth can... Uh, we can get her back again in a moment. That's OK. Um, we've also got uh, a query up there. Um, clay soil, uh, one of our listeners, is saying that a clay soil, they've managed to improve it. They've been including trace elements and they've now got um, a pH of 6.2. I presume they're talking about their pH. Uh, wondering if she should use dolomite. And uh, is it time to prune uh, native plants? So firstly, if we, if we hit the soil problem, should she be using dolomite if she's now got a pH up to 6.2 and she's been incorporating uh, trace elements. I presume she's been improving it with lots of organic uh, materials. We haven't been told. Any thoughts? 6.2 is not it's out not, of the realm. It's a pretty well-balanced It's not bad, pH. is it? It's, it's mm. in the mid-range. Um, seven's neutral. Seven's uh, neutral. So 6.2 it, is... It's, it's actually, and clay soils typically are slightly more acidic. Yes. Uh, so that, to me, sounds about the right, uh, right balance. So... Um, Often the problem with clay soils is their texture rather than the, the which is how heavy the soil is yes. as opposed to what the, the pH is. And whether your water can penetrate it and, you yes. know, so you need to open it up, get some oxygen in there. Mm. Um, which the organic matter will do, obviously. Exactly. Um, but I think that at a range, at, at 6.2, it's, it's the way pH works in terms of uh, available, availability of nutrients is the, the the broader spectrum of nutrients are available at a more neutral pH in general terms. So I think at that level, it's about right. I wouldn't be too concerned about ameliorating Yeah, and, and look, part of the question is also whether you use dolomite or lime mm. or gypsum in that situation. And, and that depends whether you need magnesium and calcium and and those sort of things as well. So if you just want to get the pH up, then, then maybe um, lime. Might mm. be better if you if you want to raise it a bit, but if you're thinking that that you might need some magnesium as well, but you you do need to be a little bit careful because if you've got too much magnesium, that's not good either. So and I, I I would come back again. I mm. feel like I'm harping on this, but come back to observing what's going with your plants. If they're yep. all growing quite happily, yep. then then people can get really fixated on should I add this element yep. or that or what should I do. Really, the the outcome of all that is healthy plants. If exactly. If and I, I think she's on the right track, yeah. so just if continue. I, if I were it. going to plant garlic in that, I'd be adding a bit of lime. Yeah, well, that's a specific crop. Though, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Yes, that's right. So really it depends, depends what you want yeah. to put into mm. it. Yeah. yeah. All right, now we're going to try and go to Elizabeth once more. You there, Elizabeth? 
No, we seem to be having a problem with the phone there at the moment. Okay. Um, we'll try and get back to Elizabeth if we can. Yeah, I'll... Um, uh, okay, so um, the, other, the other query we didn't get onto from our outside listener was, is it time to prune natives? And, well, there are natives and natives for a start. So I think we need... Um, it's a pity that uh, this caller hasn't phoned into us so we could um, find out a bit more about maybe which plants she's talking about. Yeah, I think lumping natives all together in the one mm. group is um, a big mistake because um, obviously everything flowers at a different time. So if you're looking for a generalisation, then your best bet is to be pruning after flowering and you know be mm. sure that you're not pruning off the next year's flower buds. If you, if you for instance, had calistamens, would you be pruning them now? Um, well, again, it it's, depends it's because it depends on where you are, yeah. you know, yeah. even in Melbourne because some things that are flowering, I mean, calismans in some cases can flower all year round practically. So yeah. um, it, it, it really does depend. I, I would be pruning after your major flower flush and, um, yeah. yeah, look at each plant individually rather than, yeah, looking at natives as one big group. It's, it's not as clear cut as with deciduous plants or herbaceous perennials that have an obvious season across a range of that's plants. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yes. So um, we really need um, something a little more specific to go on there. Um, so if they if they like to ring back um, on our talkback number, which is 94190155, um, we can maybe have a, have a good chat and, and be a little more specific about what we're suggesting. Um, while I think of it, we've had uh, quite a few listeners have um, contacted us over the last few weeks to say that they're having problems downloading our podcasts. Now, um, 3CR has installed a new podcast system over the last few weeks, but the one uh, problem with that new system is that at the moment, iTunes isn't linked into it. And a lot of people download their podcasts through iTunes. If you have been trying to get onto our podcast through iTunes, you won't be able to. They're hoping to rectify that over the next week or so. But uh, the the podcasts are actually up there, ready for you to download. And uh, just um, instead of going to your normal iTunes account, if you just click on the 3CR website, go to www.3cr.org.au forward slash podcasts and click on the gardening show you'll find the last few weeks are actually up there and ready for you to to download so the only problem as i say has been if people are trying to um download the podcast through their itunes account and that will hopefully be rectified in the next week or so but you can definitely get the podcast they are there and available so um so hopefully uh that will sort out that problem all right um, I think we've got a couple of other callers up there. Uh, good morning, Estelle. Good morning, Estelle. No, we do seem to be having a problem with our phones at the moment. Um, okay, we might uh, we might see what we can do about that. Uh, good morning, Ken. No, none of them are coming through. Okay, um, we'll just swap chairs here for a moment. Just having um, quite owner-operator error here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll see. Uh, we'll see what we can do. Um, let me see. 
well, while I'm, I'm mucking around with the phones here, um, Tim, I, I've always wanted to find out, um, down at Diggers, of course, at, at Heronswood, um, you have a most spectacular vegetable parterre there. Um, how much in advance do you plan that parterre for each season? A long way in advance. I thought it might be. Tell well, us what goes into the planning. We basically go through... Well, there's two peak periods a year that we aim for. Uh, and throughout the year, we're always uh, conscious of the, the cycle of how we're going to make that peak for the for the spring and the, and the, the autumn peaks. So we're... Effectively, it's a 12-month program and it's always being uh, edited. So we've been running that, we've been growing that part here for in excess of a decade now and it's refinements year on year uh, that are getting us to the point where we can now, we've pretty much got the, the weeks and days uh, of, of, of how long things take from germination through to transplant through up to their peak display point. Right. So, and, and if, if those of you are familiar with our, our, our seed catalogue, we actually, as part of our trials in outside of the, the part here, um, we actually record how long it is to harvest for certain fruits, how long things take to get to crop uh, and in, in our climate. So we've got some pretty good information on that. Okay. Factor that into the, the annual planning cycle and the decisions around what plants are going to be there because there's lots of decisions around what looks good with other things, colour colour matching, texture matching, that sort of thing. So it's quite a sophisticated bit of planning we do mm. to get to that, that parterre to its, its display. Which has come from, obviously, a lot of research, note-taking, um, which is why we've often said that... The that, that home gardeners should keep a diary yes. because you learn so much from from just noting when things happen and and of course that will also give you indications uh, of changes with different seasons and and we we look the gardening cycle is a twelve month cycle and it comes around yes, exactly, every year you exactly. know, so the lessons I mean we it learn... might vary in time yeah. on a calendar a little bit yeah but, week to um, week but, but yes. Typically speaking, what happened in March 2015 will happen within some weeks in March 2016. So if you whatever we've observed over the last six weeks is likely to happen this time again next year. So mm. you bank that by putting it in a diary or, or however you record it, and that builds your knowledge. Gardening is a – look, the, I've been gardening for 30 years and there's many people that have gardened for their entire lifetimes – there's always new things to learn and observe. And I think it was interesting with, with David before in the discussion around his book, his addition 20-odd years ago, he's now added a significant amount through observation that he's made. It's constantly learning. Observation mm. really is a, mm. a key to it, yep. Mm. Um, is everything that you plant in the parterre raised beforehand as seedlings or do you, do you plant seed direct at any point? It depends on what the crops are, but in most cases they're raised as seedlings first. Uh, it's it is quite look the the parterre itself is intended to be very much a display garden uh, so it's it's a bit different to how we run we have a mini plot in the same part of the garden which is more uh, a demonstration garden of how you could produce vegetables for a small family in a, in a backyard yes and that has uh, a, a direct sown things yes. it has it has a, a mixture of crops which is more basic based around production whereas the parterre itself is quite a it, it's in, in effect it's kind of like a uh, an annual border of of, uh, uh, of annual flowering plants uh, just using edibles. using vegetables yes, uh, yeah. look we've modeled this on on the the gardens in France that uh, at, at Villandry where they've been doing this sort of thing 
as a display, predominantly it's a, it's a display thing and it's a, it's a, a real centrepiece, uh, that's what we're, our intention is there, to, they don't to even put them eat, on the show. eat the vegetables they produce no, they at don't. Villa We do, Day. actually. They do go into our restaurant. <laughs> I'm glad so. they're not yes, wasted. Yes. But, but you're not picking them while they're displaying. No, they no, go they, into your it, restaurant It's a big pick at once finished. and yeah. either through the restaurant or through our staff, we do, we do consume them. Yeah, yeah. And it's, the thing I love about them is that they're often different. Mm. So, that, you know, I come, I'm there often mm. at the garden. Friends and I come and picnic in the garden. We use it um, the way Clive tells me he really wants it to be used. Um, and, and we love it. But you're always trying new things, yes, both yes. in the plot and, and in, the, um, in, the, in the display garden. And we're looking for things that have foliage interest or, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's not just about productivity yeah. or, or, no, or yield in there. It, well. it is beauty, yeah. unashamedly. Yeah. It's about beauty as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Mm. Mm. You're listening to Community Radio. 3CR. 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 8.55 a.m. Okay, excellent. Well, we're going to uh, see if we can get on to some of these callers again. We'll go firstly to, let me see, we'll have uh, Ken, who's in Sunshine. Are you there, Ken? Good morning, everybody. Ah, wonderful. Oh, it's, it's good. I, I'm glad I didn't fall off. <laughs> <laughs> no, you haven't fall, fallen off at all, Ken. Well, look, I just wanted to say I've never used any chemicals in my garden. I haven't got any fruit trees, um, and I've gone very indigenous to the area, which probably everyone knows, and I think it's important to do that. But anyway, and I haven't got a vegetable garden anymore. Um, but what I do, uh, I put in different manures and that every year around the garden, and I make sure, but I don't use anything, and my garden's fine. Except for neglect, I haven't got time to look after it. But everything's growing well. Fantastic. Look, often the pesticides that do get used get used on our productive crops, and that's because people want to be able to harvest them. Um, so it's um, well, they want perfect projects. That, well, like, they do, yeah. and it doesn't need to be perfect. Mm. And you know, there are so many things that you can do to help. Well, it's plants. funny. I've got a gum. I've got a, uh, a gum out the front. It's about oh, 20 storeys high, I exaggerated, I guess. But anyway, um, and I can't think of the name, but I'm going old and stupid. Um, and um, anyway, uh, one of my neighbours said to me, oh, you'll have to cut that down, it's right over your house. And I said, oh, I'm insured. If it falls, I'm, we're right. He said, it might kill you. I said, I won't need the insurance anymore, will I? <laughs> so, of- and it's an iron bark. Yeah. And, and look, those ironbarks, the trees in our suburbs are really important, particularly... Well, I can't touch it because it, and I'm proud of it. It's, uh, the uh, council's got a, 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 okay. a significant tree. Yep. And I'm proud that I've got something like that. And I've never touched it. Ken, and the other thing is that um, we're, it's really important for, to maintain the insect populations, but things like those big trees are absolutely essential to the microbat populations as well. And if we don't have decent-sized trees, we won't have the microbats. And the microbats feed on the problem pests. They'll eat two-thirds of their body weight every night if they've given, given the chance to feed in your garden. So the one, probably one of the reasons that your garden, um, you haven't had to use sprays is because you'll have a good population of microbats. And in, in some work that was done recently by the um, Australian Centre for urban urban environment uh, in Melbourne, they found that nine different species of microbats visit the average garden. Wow. Um, 
on a regular basis. Gee, so, gee. you know, we just have these populations of, mm. of animals and mm. insects that we know nothing about, and it's so easy to kill them mm. if we don't know that they're there. Well, I've I, got I certainly... an easement out the back of our place, and yeah. um, I've got about 30 trees which are Indigenous to Good the western suburbs, yep, yep. and I don't buy anything else now that is. Anyway, it's a fantastic program. And um, uh, good on there, you. You're, you're very interesting people. Oh, uh, thank you, Thanks, Ken. Bye bye. Bye. You're listening to Community Radio. 3CR. 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 3CR.
you, you mentioned you had a caterpillar on it before. I think the key to this is what is chewing it. I mean, it it, it could be a possum, I'd, although I'd probably unlikely. unlikely with, 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 I'm with, assuming with, it's a Brugmansia that you're yes, talking yeah, about. Yes, yeah. The Turas Brugmansias. Um, it, so it's hard to know how to solve a problem like that without knowing what it is and without, without seeing it. Did you have any success with the caterpillars? What yeah, did you do? I got rid of those. How did you do that? I, I did use a spray. Okay. And, and is it the same chewing that you're seeing now as you were seeing then? Well, that's what I thought, yes. When I look at it now, it seems like it's the same, but I can't see any caterpillars this time. And uh, it just has it on spots all over the, the leaves. Just, um, it just starts to get, you know, that thin look and, um, and you can see veins and things. So it's more a sap-sucking insect. It's, it's not a caterpillar chewing around the edges. So it could actually no, be a mite. Yeah. I, have, I yes, don't know if mites mite, that attack. Yeah. Is, is, is the leaf looking a bit pale or um, sort of grey colour? No, no. No. Or sort of thin or transparent in places at all? Well, only where they've chewed you can... So yes. it's, it's, it's like a real munching something thing. Spot. Yeah. It's, um, it sounds like a leaf miner or something almost, yeah. maybe. It, how old is it? Oh, it's about four or five years old. So it's well established. Oh, yeah. And it has, it's been healthy at some point in its life cycle. It does. When it recovers from this, the new leaves are wonderful. And the flowers do eventually come. And, you know, um, it's a good plant. But it just gets this every now and again. It seems like I'm just whatever it is, I can't seem to get rid of. It, it, they do. If they've got a well-established root system, you can actually cut them back very hard and... Um, you might be able to interrupt the, the breeding cycle of the pest by cutting it back, removing all the leaf, and then in the springtime it'll come back with fresh growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that is that interruption will interrupt the life cycle of the, whatever it is. But I think you ideally you need to find out what it is that's doing it and have yeah. a maybe get that the magnifying, get the magnifying glass, glass out. <laughs> right. Okay. All right. Can I have a quick question about compost? Yes, yeah, sure. Um, whenever I test my compost, it uh, comes back with. Um, the very high purple, you know, on the on that side of the thing, and I can't get it back down. I think I must have thrown too much lime in the compost as I was going along, or potash, or something. Um, and it seems to throw it out. Of so kilter. you're saying it's very alkaline? Yes. Yeah. Look, if, are you putting a lot of wood ash in it? I think I was. Yeah. yeah mm. That yeah, will make it very it. alkaline, and okay. and particularly if you're putting wood ash, you don't want to add lime. Mm. And and in fact. Most okay. composts, you don't need to add lime because as they go through that process, they will get quite acid at one point, but as they keep going through the breakdown process, they'll become neutral. So um, it's re- you're really better off. Uh, don't add too much wood ash. Right. Um, don't add lime. And how, how can I correct that? Um, Put more... Lots more, of green matter. Lots of green mm. matter in. Uh, well, it's already broken down and I'd like to use it in the garden. Is it a matter of adding sulphur, I've heard? Um, I'm reluctant to add sulphur. You, would you have pine needles around? Yes. Because they're quite acid. I've got an old Christmas tree in the garden. If you mixed in some pine needles with your compost and just gave it a little bit longer, um, you'll probably bring the pH down oh. doing it that way. Oh, terrific. Or you can put a lot of green material back in it and actually go the process again. Like oh, if, you okay. re, if you get the composting process happening again with a heap of uh, yeah. lawn clippings or even lots of the deciduous mm. leaves that are kicking right. yes. around at the moment, yeah. yes, that's true. That, that will probably ameliorate the problem too. Oh, good. Terrific. Thank you. Okay. Great program. Pleasure, Rose. Bye. Thank you. Rose. And uh, next up we have uh, Sue, who's out in Ringwood. Good morning, Sue. Hello. Go Hello. ahead. Um, 
I spoke to you before, but I didn't speak on air. All right. I'm a lady who has got a brand new garden in the back, a very big garden, and an older garden in the front. Right. I had no worms in the back at all, so, and it's clay. It's grey clay, and very, very dense mm-hmm. and very compacted. So I had a ditch which turned it all over, and I brought in masses and masses and masses of green clippings and folded those through it, and I've done that for the last four months. Right. And I've put virtually no plants in there, and I've put a bit of blood and bone in and quite a bit of mushroom mulch and turned it all over. So I'm just about to start planting in that. I tested it. It's 6.2. Um, I now have matted worms, and the soil is extremely friable. I can put my hands in it and well turn it done. over. Well done. That's yeah, fantastic. That's, yeah, I'm really, really pleased because of the worms. But in the front, I took out a lot of trees, a lot of... Gum trees, privet, cotoneaster, and the gum trees were full of um, full of term, full of termites, um, so they had to go. I didn't do that sort of soil preparation in the front. Yep. I just put in some fresh. I had a ditch which turned it over and turned through a lot of fresh um, mulch that I had a supplier deliver. Okay. I planted a lot of natives there. I planted. Grevilleas, hop bushes, icofillers, um, the prostrate wattle, which looks fantastic. Good. So we, we, all, we're going to have to go. Grown, they've all grown fabulously, but the soil is still really compacted. Well, just so, keep working at it like you've worked at with the, with the, the back one, digging in lots of organic matter and just keep working it. I've lost some plants in the front yep. because the wind has blown them over okay. and I've had to stake a lot of plants. Yep. Look, I'm afraid we've, we've run out of time. Um, oh, I'm sorry. If you can ring back next week, I'm, I will. You know, we're, we're I will. more than happy to talk to you more about it, but I'm afraid we have to go for the moment. Thank you very much. Okay, bye. Okay, bye-bye. Well, uh, we've had an eventful morning, but I'm afraid we have definitely run out of time. Um, a big thank you to the team and a huge thank you to Vicky who's been handling everything. And, of course, we'll be back at 7.30 next week. Till then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.